Welcome to Empowered Leadership. We share candid conversations with successful leaders about what it takes to cultivate the leadership, life, and legacy you desire, and to do it with confidence, ease, and joy. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese. Today, I'm joined by Omar Combs, the Chief Marketing Officer for Visit Huntington Beach, the destination marketing organization that brings over 4 million visitors to Huntington Beach every year. Omar is a marketing and communications expert with over two decades of experience in leadership positions with notable organizations like LA Metro. Although I know Omar personally from our work together in Santa Monica, where we worked on a groundbreaking new approach to destination perception studies and destination master plans. Not only is Omar great at leading innovation, which I found out through that work, he's also wonderful at building high-performing teams that are engaged and love to come to work. And to learn more about how he's accomplished that feat and other insights from his journey, you'll have to stay tuned. So without further ado, let's dive in. All right, Omar, well, thank you so much for joining me and those who are tuning in on Empowered Leadership. I really appreciate it. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. How are you doing? I am doing well. The sun is shining. I got a long walk in this morning, so I'm feeling like I'm showing up as my best self, which is always good. Right on, right on. Same here. I just, <laughs> just before this uh, podcast, I uh, went on a, a walk around the pier here on uh, in Huntington Beach with my two Shiba Inus, and that's always wonderful. You know, my dogs, the Pacific view, the sun, the ocean is beautiful. <laughs> I think that's literally the American dream. <laughs> Um, Well, as the name of this show is Empowered Leadership, the first question I always like to ask my guests is, what does empowered leadership mean to you? Great question. A loaded one. (laughs) Empowered leadership to me means having the sense, the wherewithal, the ability kind of to recognize the best in your teammates and kind of leading the charge and creating, fostering an environment for those folks to kind of rise to that occasion. I'm a big believer in that. So I think that that for me, that's what that means, you know, bringing out the best in in folks. So assuming good intent and creating an environment where people can show up as their best selves. 100%. I love that. How have you approached creating that environment? The longer your career is, the more perspective you have to kind of compare scenarios, experiences in your previous jobs, right? And, um, you know, you kind of recognize the best in what you had in each of those environments. And with the next job, you, you know, you work to carry those over and then kind of work on the things that you thought were maybe, maybe had room for improvement. And so, you know, certainly at this juncture of my career here at um, Visit Huntington Beach, I started about two and a half years ago and I inherited a whole team with, you know, that knew each other already. And there was already a history here, both with each other, but also just as an organization culturally. And so, you know, as the head of the marketing department, you know, it was kind of my job to kind of like learn of that, you know, legacy culture environment and kind of figure out where I need to go to kind of take it in the direction that I wanted to, which again, harkens back to your earlier question about How can I create an environment for journey level career people to really grow in their element and feel vulnerable, as you said, you know, um, to kind of take a chance, explore and know that it's okay to fail to ultimately find that end success. 
And so that was my focus here. You know, each team member had an individual journey towards what that looked like. As I mentioned, you know, with um, one of my colleagues, it was more of a, you know, personal thing to flesh out that personal barriers, right? To kind of address so that she can uh, get to where we needed to get her to. Others was more about wanting more structure and direction and purpose and leadership in that sense. And then for some of the more junior staff members, it was just building a path for growth. There were a few things I heard that I want to pull out and highlight. And one is the importance of when you come in as a leader, really understanding what's the legacy culture I'm coming into. Absolutely. And the second thing that you didn't say explicitly, but was embedded in your response is the way you're thinking about culture. It's not just the relationships or the vibe we have when we're together. It's really about what are the individual needs that people have so that they can show up and achieve what we need them to and they want to achieve in the organization? And then what are the policies that we need to put into place and the plans that we need to put into place to enable that? Absolutely, um, Alexandra. Just well, well, well spoken. And that's literally what we had to do here, you know, and again, back to that point, it was different for each team member, you know, and Mm -hmm. so it's just been wonderful to have been able to have the opportunity here at VHB to employ that and enact that and create an environment that allows my colleagues to grow and and boy, have they, it's been wonderful to um, witness. (laughs) How has that focus on individualized growth and development in service of building that cohesive organizational culture changed the way you would define the overarching culture and performance and impact of the organization? Mm -hmm. Mm, Great question. You know, I would say that the the team here at BHB and uh, they've always had a team spirit, Mm -hmm. you know, there may have been, you know, in just my personal opinion, there may have been instances in where the benefits and outcomes of the team may be more so than it needs to be superseded the needs of the individual. And so what happens when you do that is it, there's this monotony or homogenized approach that happens where, you know, it's, it's about the end goal. It's about the, the sum and the whole of the parts, but not, but not the parts though, right? At the expense of really thinking about what are the parts that play into the bigger machine, right? That makes the engine run. And so, you know, if these parts are starting to fall apart, the the larger plan starts to crumble as well. And that's kind of what we were potentially facing. Yeah, I don't think that point about achieving team success requires every individual to have achieved personal success can be overstated. Mm. And I often hear, especially in larger organizations from leaders, that's just not possible because we're so big. I can't meet every individual person's need. And my response to that is always focus on empowering your managers mm-hmm. because you as an executive may not be able to meet every single person's needs. You absolutely can't in a large organization directly, mm-hmm. but indirectly by equipping managers to do that for the handful of people that they support you can accomplish that ultimate objective. And you can't get big change without every individual making small incremental progress in their own life and how they show up. 
Absolutely, Alexander. And here's another thing. I don't know if it this applies exactly to this, but it reminds me of something that a lot of larger organizations, even sometimes just leaders in general, conflate. And that's the notion of happiness and professional satisfaction or satisfaction. When that example you just brought up, I I literally can hear in their heads, you know, them receiving that feedback as they're being charged to make employees happy. So I often joke with team members and be like, you know, my job's not to make you happy. My job is to make sure that you feel heard, respected, and that you have the support that you need to success to succeed professionally. What an incredible distinction. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's a really powerful message that a job as a leader isn't to make you happy. Their job is to empower you and give you the support and the tools you need to be successful. And ultimately, in doing so, the hope would be that you're able to find fulfillment through your work, and that contributes to a sense of personal satisfaction and happiness. But that's not what a leader's job is. And I think what happens often is people get stuck in that trap of trying to make people happy, and then it doesn't work and they get frustrated. Or employees get stuck in the trap of expecting a leader to do that, and then they get frustrated because those surface-level needs aren't met, even if that's not what really is critical to empowering people to show up and do their best work. Absolutely. So you've talked a little bit about one of your own approaches to leadership development for yourself, which is really creating space for self-reflection. So looking back at experiences, exploring what can I learn from that? How can I apply that to my current context? What other strategies, tactics, or approaches have you taken to your own self-development and self-leadership? Wow, Alexandra, as corny as this sounds, it is absolutely my number one mantra approach, thought process, in terms of ensuring that I continue to grow as a leader. And that is, and I, you know, I've, I've shared this with my, with all of my, I've had wonderful conversations with all of my previous bosses and even my current boss about this concept. And that is, I've always loved mentorship. I've done it in my personal life as well as professional life. But what I always tell journey level or, you know, younger career folks, or even, like I said, or even some of my bosses and superiors and those kind of intense, more private conversations is, To me, a leader is someone who is a teacher, right? But is also and always a student as well. I always say that once any leader or someone in a position of power uh, feels that they've achieved 100% perfection and and they they feel like they don't have anything left to learn from anyone, whether it's a colleague, a mentor of their own, or even from staff, you know, younger folks, that's a big, huge red flag. That's a problem. So for me, what you know, uh, as a way to always kind of check myself, so to speak, right, is I'm always open to feedback. I love the Socratic method. You know, when when younger folks come to me asking questions that I know they have the answer within, I'll kind of employ the Socratic method to kind of make them think it through and ask the questions that I know are in them. And even by doing that, it's surprising how much I even learn about myself or things that maybe I need to do better and improve. And it could be anything from the way instructions are given or, you know, or training or a marketing program that I create to, you know, as a digital marketer, right? One of the things that you have to absolutely be open-minded to is 
you're going to always be learning as technology every six months, it seems like it's updating, right? So there in itself forces me to maintain that perspective of always being a student of the technology. Because again, once I think, oh, I know all things digital, I'm dead in the water, right? So always be a student. Yes. Leverage mentors to help you guide your path. And then I thought it was interesting when I asked about your own growth and development, you talked about teaching others. And then you made that connection that through teaching and mentoring others, we can often learn so much about ourselves, Absolutely, which I think is a beautiful point. And then the final piece is understanding that you can't know everything. So make sure you're building a team that complements you and you don't have to know everything they do, <laughs> which I think most people know, but is always a friendly reminder. And I'll say it. Um, one would think that that last point is common sense. But again, that's hiccup that I've also seen in many leaders where, you know, they're reticent to change or they're a bit hesitant to learn. And again, you know, it may be comfort level things, you know what I mean? Or the need, they esteem leadership as knowing everything. And yeah. Yeah. And I just don't think that's, I'll just say, I personally disagree with that notion. I I think leadership is about leveraging what you know and imparting that on others, but absolutely being a sponge to continue learning yourself. Well, and you made an excellent point that the industry in which you live, where you digital marketing is center within your work, you can't know everything because the everything to know is always changing and evolving. I'm curious, what advice would you have to leaders who are sitting in a similar space about how you can equip your team to be successful and to thrive in that type of nebulous, always changing environment? Mm -hmm. Wow, great question. I can only base it off of what I've done, and that's just learning everything that you can, you know, voracious reader. I'm always looking online for like, you know, webinars, seminars, again, learning from others who know better, you know, the areas in which I'm lacking, I make a concerted effort, conscious effort to delve myself into and find those SMEs, subject matter experts, you know, and learn from them. And, and then conversely with my team, you know, they all are on various educational tracks, whether it's uh, webinars, conferences, I I currently have one of my team members in um, an e-marketing program that uh, at the end of it, she'll earn her certificate in digital marketing, which is pretty awesome. And so I would say just be getting out there and learning what um, you don't know. Yeah, that's critical. And what I'm hearing you say is it's not that that staying on top of trends or knowledge building is just one person or one team which is often what I see organizations do is they'll delegate innovation to a team or trend forecasting to a team. It's really empowering each person to figure out where's a space where I could own some domain expertise and how can I build that so that all of your team members are empowered to do that learning, development, continuous improvement that enables when you bring that together, real, true innovation and disruption. Absolutely, Alexandra. And then, you know, to our earlier point, uh, the way what I try to do here too, again, right, to uh, maximize the resources is on a team level, assess what the needs are, where the gaps are, and then align those with those individual conversations, right? And, And paths of what people are looking to do, where their interests lie, what they're looking, where they're looking to grow. 
and whenever possible, right, try to marry the two. So that way, you know, there's a team benefit to the knowledge growth, but then there's also that individual one. And then, you know, the very rare case where there's an instance where that doesn't meet, then that's when talk about leadership, that's when it's time to make the executive decision of, of like, okay, you're going to, you're going to be the one to learn that. Right. Sometimes it's myself, um, oftentimes yeah. it's the team, you know, but, but what, again, what I love is, you know, creating that type of environment offers that flexibility, right. To do all of that, right. Meet the individual needs and, or, uh, the team needs. So. Yeah. That matching of what does the organization need in terms of development and growth? And then where do people have an interest? That's the magic of good development planning. So often a barrier I see is that organizations aren't doing the organizational need assessment or a second barrier is managers don't have the uh, capability or capacity or support to be able to do that matching with their team member. Another challenge I see in organizations is a fear that if we invest a lot, people are just going to take it somewhere else and leave. And I'm curious, you have, it sounds like made a lot of investments in your people. How do you think about that fear of investing in people and having that be a cost that bleeds out of the organization as people leave? Yeah. You know, that's an interesting question. You're paying forward. And, you know, the opportunities that were bestowed upon you when you were young and coming up, you're paying it forward and investing in the future of, in this case, tourism, travel and tourism. And so the investments more times than not usually stay within the industry. But even it, but even if not, though, how wonderful is it to know that you were part of one's growth, whether they stay in tourism or not? I think I, you know, I don't know of any hard facts, but I believe um, the trend is that more people stay within the industry, right? Those skills translate within the industry. And so that's the notion, the the perspective of investing on, on you know, and in these growth opportunities for journey level, you know, career people on our team is that, you know, whether they stay here or they move on to another DMO or another business within travel and tourism, we all still benefit. So I, I love that. I just love that. Yeah, the shift I'm hearing you talk about is a shift from focusing on just what's good for my company in the short term to what's the right thing to do for our industry and trusting that if we're making an investment in that, that that's going to help everyone and it's going to help us in the long run. So having that vision that's bigger than just ourselves and our short-term performance enables us to start thinking about investments in a different way. Right, right. You know, and it's not to say that that doesn't happen, but it's rare. It's, you know, I believe way more so people appreciate that investment and, you know, they stay either with the organization or like, you know, once they feel they're ready for that next thing, they move on and usually within the same um, industry. So I think that's the right, the right thing to do versus what's good for me and like, you know, just keeping it that doesn't necessarily guarantee longevity either. You know, I would argue that that, that kind of inspires the exit because you start to see that. You start to see almost disingenuous um, um, reasoning for investing in uh, you know, a team member. And it's a turnoff. <laughs> yeah, I'll share as a reinforcement of that point that uh, research over the last two years by Gallup, 
and a number of other reputable organizations has affirmed time and again that a lack of growth and development opportunity is among the top three motivators for employees to leave their job. Mm, Interesting. And if you want to keep your people, you have to invest in their growth and development. That's as true for a leader as it is for a low-wage worker. Yeah. And it's expensive to replace people. (laughs) It is. You know, again, I've been in organizations where they have, you know, a terrible retention rate and, you know, (laughs) very expensive. But what what I was going to say real quick was that, you know, I love your point about investing on all levels because my boss, our CEO, he, the leadership team, we are also part of that growth opportunities. And so, for example, I am at the end process of securing my um, CDME. It's kind of a certificate degree within the tourism um, industry. And, you know, that's all the support of, you know, my CEO. And so uh, that was really instrumental and kind of indicative of just the way he thinks, you know what I mean? And so I'm very appreciative. So, yeah. As important for leaders as it is for everyone else, there was um, DDI International, which does research on leadership. I recall in a landmark report they did about two years ago, they looked at what was the correlation between investment in leaders' growth and development and financial returns and business impact. And there was a hugely positive correlation in terms of in uh, leaders who did the investment through coaching, skill building, capacity building within themselves had much better performance relative to peers in their same industry. Mm. So controlling for all these environmental factors, that investment was a differentiator in bottom line. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting. Not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to make a little bit of a turn, uh, something on a more personal level, some of your experiences growing up, how they shaped you as a leader. And you talked about, you used the term uh, growing up being the only one of, mm. and how that shaped your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences, and how those carried into your leadership. I'd love to just give you space to share a bit more about how that being the only one of has shaped your leadership. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm one of millions of professionals that probably look like me that can probably identify with, you know, a little bit of what I'm, you know, I meant by that. And that is, you know, it, while nowadays it's much, it's most certainly a different situation with still room for growth. But um, certainly in the beginning of my career, you know, I was often the, the only person in any organization that looked like me. I come from a uh, uh, you know Latino Hispanic household, and my parents were you know hard workers, and you know really emphasized school and working hard, and you know never letting any of those you know barriers get in the way of your goals. And so I never you know really subscribed to the whole you know being kind of having any of those labels attributed to me. You know what I mean? It's like you know if I had an end goal and I wanted to go for it, I did it. You know, but. However, though, once I was in the corporate world, you, you know, you go from environments where everyone looks like you to more corporate environments where, you know, oftentimes there's, you're the only one, or there's just a few that look like you. It's an interesting experience where I felt like I had to work three times as hard. And, but then what was also happening was recognizing 
I was able to understand the significance of rep what representation is, you know, the very earliest forms of DEI and what that meant, you know, is like on one hand, again, right. I, I never subscribed to labels. I don't want to represent any group because we're, we're not a monolith, right. We're all different, but I'm not naive to not recognize the significance and importance of that representation, right. In, in an environment like that and the opportunities to educate folks and, and shift perspectives and preconceptions and all of that stuff. But to answer your question, how it shaped my leadership, though, is it really threw me in there and learning. It forced me to learn to work with individuals, teams that um, don't share your background, your experience, your lens on the world, and maybe even just your like uh, just opinions, whether it's, you know, political, whatever, you know, interpersonal. And um, that was a priceless skill to learn because what I learned quickly is that, you know, everyone's not going to agree with you. You're not going to agree with everyone. But at the end of the day, there's a common goal that we all have to achieve. And you just need to figure out what that way is. Right. Then um, my first experience where I was in a job where there was a variety of people from all kinds of backgrounds and all that is when I worked for LA Metro, the uh, transit authority. That was my first job where and there were all kinds of people that looked like me and beyond, but we all have different opinions, different backgrounds, different perspectives. And so those same very skills about learning to work with people of with different perspectives maintained. And so the way it's affected my leadership is nowadays, right? And, and especially in this whole DEI movement and all of that, representation is absolutely critical and matters. It shouldn't be the first consideration, right? When you're assessing one's ability to get the job done. But so where I feel the responsibility is being a bit more intentional and creative and strategic in where organizations look for those pools of talent. I often, one of the very common <laughs> phrases I would hear from executives are like, Oh, well, you know, well, we tried. They're just not out there. We can't find, we can't find African American talent. They're just, it's just not out there or, or Latino talent. No, you're not looking to where they are. You know, it's like you need to go yeah. to where they are and where their circles lie, right? Not them coming to you. So when we're recruiting, we make sure that we reach out to all the recruitment sources and pools that are out there. And usually um, by doing that, you do see the range, the mix, that diversity of applicants when it comes to the workplaces, it really comes down to the skill set and being able to work with people who may or may not share your perspective, regardless of what they look like. But being in an environment where the only one, you kind of sped tracked <laughs> to that understanding. Yeah, it forces you quickly to learn how to do something that everyone needs to learn, which is how to understand different perspectives embrace those perspectives and engage in meaningful intellectual debate and disagreement and productive conflict. And that's where, to bring it full circle to our earlier conversation, it's really important to be intentional about the culture we're creating and how we're supporting each individual in that organization to grow and develop so that they can participate fully. Because you, as to your point, were fast-tracked in learning how to do that. Many people who didn't have that experience of being around people who are so different than them, maybe never learned how to do that. 
until their current workplace. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to need a different kind of support to get comfortable in those environments and be successful. Yeah. I mean, that whole experience, you know, was underscored during the, you know, the unfortunate incident with George Floyd, where, you know, uh, you know, everyone that uh, was not of that experience would come to me asking questions, you know, trying to understand. And again, on one hand, you know, it was exhausting because it's, I'm sure people out there feel me. <laughs> it was exhausting. Like, you know, it's not my job to explain this to you. And, and, but at the same time, though, I did feel a level of responsibility and taking that opportunity to kind of cr- create and catalyze a genuine conversation about it. There is no right answer to your point. It's a really personal decision. It sounds like that on any given day, the answer might be different based on how you were feeling. And I appreciate your vulnerability and sharing your experience and giving me permission to explore that because a lot of leaders are grappling with how do we create healthy, thriving organizations that are diverse? Mm-hmm. And that continues to be a challenge. So I think your life experience and the wisdom that you've gained is and have shared is all really helpful for leaders who are grappling with that, or maybe they've done it and they want to continue making progress. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I love it. And then just you know, just one quick note. In my current job, there we have among the staff, we have great diversity. And so it's something that we're pretty proud of. I would say, though, to be honest, I would say it's more serendipity than a conscious effort to create the diverse staff that we have. But I feel that the investments we've made in the team to keep the folks that are here is a testament to that. And one of those things is feeling a sense of safety, working in an environment with people from diverse backgrounds and different political perspectives. And, you know, we somehow still respect each other, get along and, you know, get things done at the end of the day. Yeah, common thread through a number of our conversations today has been this notion of vulnerability and safety in the workplace. And this is clearly a quality you value because you've demonstrated it and you've talked about it being something that you've really intentionally cultivated in your own organization. What could you share that might be helpful for other leaders about how they could be thinking about or approaching tapping into the power of vulnerability to improve the culture, improve outcomes, improve performance in their own organizations? That's a big question, Alexandra, because I think one of the problems a lot of leaders do have, regardless of their background, just anyone that's in a leadership position, I think just the way we've all been raised and encultured to believe what a leader is supposed to be or what leadership is. And, you know, in the stereotypical, you know, traditional sense, leadership is the complete opposite of vulnerability. It's strength. Mm -hmm. It's showing that you're indomitable and that, you know, that you have no flaws and just all of that. And I think uh, that's where the challenge lies. But I would say, though, that the true leaders, true strong leaders, you know, that succeed and are able to transform not only themselves, but organizations, others are those who show their vulnerability. And I'm not talking about full on meltdown, (laughs) you know, under crises. That's not a good example, but even simply showing that again, that I, yes, I have knowledge to impart and I am a teacher. I am a leader, but I am also here to learn. I am a student. I am 
I'm a listener. I'm here to listen as well as speak, right? And I'm thinking of those leaders that I've had the privilege of working with, including, again, my my current boss. They have enough of courage. I would say courage is another thing. Ironically so, courage in leadership. (laughs) But the courage to show that vulnerability, you know, and show like, hey, look, I have bad days too. So I get it. And you know what? Actually, that does it to, you know, I have found that that you, it creates empathy for, and support from the team because they're like, oh, mm-hmm. he, he is, he's not infallible. Like he, he has bad days too. And he messes up sometimes as well, you know? And I just think it's a powerful, that showing that vulnerability is a powerful display of leadership, you know, because what it does is it shows we're all going to make mistakes, but we all can bounce back from it. Right. And um, when your leader shows that, it's just the best example. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what I'm hearing is to create a culture in which people feel safe to fail, which people can grow and achieve their highest potential, that requires vulnerability. And the first way leaders can promote vulnerability in their culture is by doing it themselves. And that's setting the expectation up front that I have bad days. I'm going to expect you all are going to have some bad days. I'm going to sometimes make a misstep. I expect all of you are sometimes going to make missteps. So you're setting the expectation. You're bringing yourself into it (laughs) and saying, yeah, it starts with me and I'm human just like you. And then it's being present in that moment and being willing to admit when it happens. Oh, yeah, Alexander. And inviting people to give you grace, just like you're going to give them. Absolutely, Alexander. I think that's just a super, super critical point that you just shared and and kind of summarized much better than I did. (laughs) And also, too, you know, that whole notion that it really, again, another, another corny line, but it's absolutely true. It does start and end from the top. And what leaders bring to an organization, the good and the bad, it trickles down. And so if you're coming in there, you know, again, with all of the kind of the room for improvements, as we've discussed in this past chat time here, it will be problematic. And then conversely, you know, when you impart the, you know, those better leadership qualities, it does resonate with teams. You know, I've seen, I've seen both scenarios, you know, like great leaders and awful leaders and how it trickles down and affects the entire organization, just the one person. That's something that when I work with clients in a growth guide capacity where we're doing real self-leadership work, we do that midpoint check-in and we explore what have we seen, where are we seeing improvements, what are the contributing factors. And people are always, even if they expected it, they're still amazed at the impact that shifting just the way that they showed up every day the attitudes they had, the mindset they brought, Mm -hmm. the body language they exhibited, the way they communicated and asked questions, those Mm -hmm. shifts in how they showed up had tremendous ripple effects through the organization, through how other people showed up. And I don't think the power can be overstated of really focusing when you're a leader on making sure, how am I showing up as my highest self? every day. I love that, Alexandra. You know, look, we have, I mean, it's almost Pollyanna, but we have a wonderful cultural environment here at Visit Huntington Beach. And I will literally almost every other day or when we have our staff meetings, I always remind the team, I'm like, hey guys, look, 
especially for some of the, you know, the younger folks on our teams. This is, it's, it's almost sad to acknowledge, but this is lightning in a bottle. This is not the norm in the workspace, you know, the, the way we all get along and there's just, just how wonderful and healthy of a workspace this is. So to create longevity in this, if you guys are feeling, digging this, this space, this environment, this energy, this camaraderie, this mutual respect, et cetera, every single day that you guys come in here, you've got to think, what can I do? What's my small part? To, con- um, to make sure that this extends just one more day. And it really that really resonates with the team, you know, because I think I've gotten those who may not have worked in other jobs. So for some of our team members, this is their first job. And for others, they may not have experienced, you know, what others have in terms like, for example, working in a toxic environment, right? And so um, it's just been wonderful, you know, and I, it, so we all joke about it now. It's like, oh yeah, I'm making sure that <laughs> this extends one more day. So it's just wonderful. Yeah, that's beautiful. As we near the end of our time together, there's one question I'd love to ask you. And that is, what's one piece of conventional leadership wisdom that you think is outdated and needs to head out the door? I think we talk, you touched upon it a little earlier because I've noticed a lot of leaders do this. You must find a way to embrace the notion that you can't possibly know everything. And once you understand that, It informs everything else you do as a leader, hiring, recognizing what pools of talent are needed, right? To fill whatever gaps there may be, whether it's organizational or within your leadership line or just yourself, right? If it's, you know, for smaller teams. Um, So I would say, you know, have the courage to acknowledge you can't know it all. And your role as a leader is to find those pools of talent that will supplement what you need there and then rely rely on that expertise to make those executive decisions. Yeah, so getting comfortable with leadership is not about having an answer. It's about creating a team that can get to the right answers in any given moment in time. Well, well said. Perfect, well said. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I so appreciate the time and the conversation that we've been able to have today. Thank you, Alexandra. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me, your host, Alexandra Reese. You can find Omark on LinkedIn. Check the show notes for the link to his profile to find out more on how you can improve your leadership, life, and impact with confidence, ease, and joy. Please visit my website, opastrategy.com. That's O-P-A strategy.com. And then please make sure to search for Empowered Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and click to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. And if you enjoyed this one, please do share with a friend or a colleague. It makes a big difference. Thank you so much and have a lovely day.